This is Reaching the Finish Line. And I'm your host, Callan Dix. Check out the website, www.reachingthefinishline.com. And pick up my free report. Save up to 75% what they don't want you to know. ReachingTheFinishLine.com And welcome. Today I am delighted to have Erica Anderson. Erica is the founding partner of Protease, a coaching, consulting, and training firm that focuses on leader readiness. She's also the author of four books. Uh, Her first book being Growing Great Employees, Turning Ordinary People into Extraordinary Performers. Uh, Her other book is Plan for Success, Outthink Your Competitors, Um, Leading So People Will Follow, and then her new book, uh, Be Bad First. Erica is also uh, one of the most popular business bloggers on Forbes magazine. Uh, She's been quoted in very national publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Fortune Magazine, and the New York Times. Erica, welcome. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Excellent. So, uh, let's let's kind of because I mean you have over 30 years of experience with this, so I think I think you're one of the best people to speak to this topic. Um, so, you know, you wrote the book "Leading," so people will follow. Let's first talk about what inspired you to write that book. Um, I love that question. So, so this takes us back about 20 years. I, I started my business, Proteus, 25 years ago, and as it started to unfold, I found myself really deal, dealing a lot with C-level, you know, very highly placed executives, you know, CEO, CFO, CAOs, and I, I started to notice this really interesting thing, which was that some people, had, although they had a big title, they didn't really seem to have people's trust and respect. And then other people who didn't have the big titles did have that trust and respect. And, and, and there was one day when it really all came home to me. I was, um, there was a guy that I was working with who was the CEO of a company and he didn't, you know, he just wasn't getting people's followership and I couldn't figure out what it was. And so I was standing in the back of the room, he was talking to about his top 35 people and I was kind of standing in the back of the room watching. And as he was speaking, he spoke for about 20 minutes, and people weren't, nobody was getting up and leaving, but they just weren't that engaged. They were kind of like, okay. And then I noticed while he was speaking, at some point in the 20 minutes, almost every single one of those people at some point turned and looked at this other person, this guy who happened to be the CFO. And I realized that they were more interested in that guy's response to what was being said than what was being said. And I thought, wow, so they're treating that guy like he's the real leader. What is that about? So that sent me down this whole path of what leads us to treat some people like leaders. Like, and we've all had, I think most of us have had this experience where there are some people we work for that, okay, we work for them, they're, they're okay, you know, we don't quit. And then there are other people who are just such, they just, they're such good leaders. We want to follow them and we trust them and we feel loyal to them and we'll go through fire for them. And I thought, you know, what are these differences that we're looking for subconsciously that tell us whether or not somebody is a leader that we want to follow? And that's what led me to write the book. I did a lot of research and found out there are six things that we look for that we, that we need to see in a leader before we'll fully follow that person. And that's, that's the basis for the book. Now let's quantify that a little bit, Erica. 
what are those six things? Great question also. So what we found is that um, the six things are, and I'll, I'll say each of them and then I'll explain them a bit. So the six are farsighted, passionate, courageous, wise, generous, and trustworthy. So what that means is we want, farsighted means we want a leader who has a clear sense of the future. Where are we heading? If they don't have that, we feel like, well, why are we following you? You don't know where we're going. You don't know what's up. Well, we'll just figure it out for ourselves, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we want the leader to have a clear sense and share that with us and include us in the plan. Not like I'm going, you guys are either coming or not, but hey, let's get there together. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is passion. And that doesn't just mean loudness or enthusiasm. It means depth of commitment. We really want to know that our leaders are deeply committed to the things that are important to them, that they're not just going to kind of wander off in the middle of things, that they're going to stay committed to us and to the enterprise and to success. So that kind of passion is really important to us. And then courage is the third one. We want to know that leaders are courageous. And partly that's you know, what we usually mean when we say courageous, we want to make sure that they're going to be able to make tough decisions in difficult situations. But a lot of it is we want to know that the leader will do things that are difficult for that person if it's for the good of the enterprise. Like, for instance, if, if you have a leader who, let's say, has a tough time giving difficult feedback, you know that they're a kind person and they don't like to give hard feedback, and you see them doing it because it's for the good of the group or the good of the company, then you trust that person's courage, that that person is more courageous on behalf of the company than they are worried about their own comfort. And we need to see that. So that's courage. Does that make sense? It does. And uh, perhaps we could we can park right there and maybe go into that a little deeper. What would you say, Erica, to like uh, like international employees like cultural differences uh sometimes courage you know may actually be a detriment you know what for example um when you take uh latin american culture you know really you can't be very uh necessarily direct or necessarily uh straightforward because it could come off as too aggressive uh to the you know lat to the to the latin employee you know do you have any uh advice to that to people who have uh, international employees Yes, it's a it's a really really good point because different cultures are are different. And courage doesn't mean doing particular things. It doesn't mean always being tough or always being easy. It means doing things that are tough for you to do if they're necessary. So, for instance, let's use exactly your example. Let's say that you've been hired to run the South American part of your company, the South American division of your company, and you're a real tough, straightforward person. And you realize, you get down there and you realize that the culture that you're in is, is softer and less direct and that you have to be more diplomatic. It would be courageous for you to act out of your own direct comfort zone to abide by those cultural norms. I see. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's really doing what's best for the enterprise, even if it's uncomfortable for you. That's, that's, what's, that's what's courageous. Ah, I see. Please continue. So then, uh, why? So the, the first three, farsighted, passionate, and courageous, are kind of the outward-facing ones. They're the ones that everybody sees. They're the ones that, okay, here, looking out to the world. Wise, generous, and trustworthy are more internal but equally important. So wise means that we want leaders who really are thoughtful about the important things. Like if something is important, that they'll, they'll reflect on it, they'll look for patterns, they'll learn from their experience. They're not just kind of thoughtless and gung-ho. And the reason that's important to us is because 
our lives are important to us. And we want to think that our leaders are thinking deeply about the impact that stuff is going to have on us and aren't just, you know, kind of barreling through. So, and the other great thing about wise leaders is we can learn from them. What I've noticed is that leaders are, who are wise, who are reflective and who look for patterns and who learn from their experience, they help the people who work for them do those same things, which is great. Um, generous means primarily generosity of spirit. You know, when I would, uh, when we would talk about this model during the recession, especially people would say, well, generous, we don't have any extra money. And I'd say, you know, generosity is not primarily about money. It's about being generous with praise and being generous with your expectations about people and being generous with responsibility and information and, you know, those kinds of things that you can always share with people. So that's, that's, that's what point. we look for in leaders. We want them to be generous with whatever they have, you know, not, not uh, hold it to themselves and be stingy. And then last is trustworthy. We really, you know, we need to rely upon our leaders in this way. If they say they're going to do something, we want to be able to be reasonably sure that they're going to do it. And then if they don't do it, that they'll have a good reason, they'll explain, they'll apologize, and they'll say what they're going to do instead. You know, so that's part of trustworthy. We also want to know that they're discreet and they'll keep confidences, that if we share something private with them, then it won't be kind of all over the grapevine the next day. And that, it's really, it's really foundational. We, if a leader isn't trustworthy, even if he or she has the other five, we still hesitate to fully follow them. And that's great because, uh, you know, these six points really covers it. And these are cornerstones that can really build a strong, uh, ethical, and great business to work for. And also these principles can be even more paramount for startups because a lot of startups, you know, they, they start to get employees but typically, they never had a lot of management skills. So this is a good framework, a good foundation for even startups to start uh, building their business on and to be able to make their business successful and to be able to entice. Uh, oh, I love that. Talent. And I totally agree. And, and to, to extend your point, it's big businesses, medium business, small business. It's also you don't have to you can you can start to develop these characteristics in yourself early in your career i mean you don't have to wait until you're you know the head of marketing before or the ceo or the gm or whatever because what i've noticed is that you know we work with a lot of organizations and almost without exception i see when someone is young new to the organization and people are really looking at that person and saying wow that person has a lot of potential they'll really go far at least part of it is usually because they have these characteristics in their job already even if it's a pretty junior job they're already operating far-sighted passionate courageous wise generous trustworthy and people pick up on that absolutely and i i also typically recommend uh, the listeners to, you know, uh, a startup is a great place to work for because often uh, you would shave off uh, a decade or two of climbing up the ladder because if you start with a company that's relatively new and, uh, you know, especially once you have these this, this framework like yours uh, incorporated, you know, Number one, people are less stressful. Uh, number two, uh, people are happier. Uh, not not only not only with the not only with the the quality of work, but also with the potential what they could become. Because you know they're not working for a big business or a Fortune 500 company. They're working for a much much smaller business, which uh, which which as the business grows, so can they grow uh, with the company. So that's something uh, I you know like I said I always recommend for uh, listeners to consider. You know obviously it's different. 
you know, obviously, uh, you know, working for a startup may not be for everyone. It could definitely be stressful. Uh, it could definitely be uh, 12 to 14 hour days. But at the same time, if a person is willing to uh, see the upside, see the potential in it, and to be able to accelerate their growth with, with the company, uh, I think that's I think that's worthwhile than I considering. Really you agree with you. I, I think that if someone is less concerned about security and more focused on growth and acceleration, then a startup is a great place to work. Because as you say, it's sort of like all hands on deck. And if you demonstrate both your capability and your willingness to take on more, you're much likely to be given more to take on than in a bigger company. Because, you know, in a startup, there are never enough people. There's always too much to do. And if you can say, hey, I'm here, I can I can lead, I'm farsighted, I'm passionate, I'm great, I can do this stuff, you know, give it to me, and then you execute, you actually are trustworthy and you do what you're given to do, then you're right, you can really just, I mean, I've known people, you know, who started in startups and two or three years later, as the company has grown, they're, you know, they're the head of ops or they're, <laughs> you know, they're the right. head of all sales or whatever because, there wasn't anybody to do it, and they just did a great job, and they just kept getting, it kept growing as the company grew. Right, and and in your uh, thirty plus years of experience, you know, one of the things that you have worked on is management and leadership development. And in your book, when you say leaning so people will follow, uh, that typically applies to you know all staff on deck. But the question, the question is, and probably many people are also wondering, how can a typical employee, let's say whether they just have a small supervisory role or let's say even they just have like an entry level role, but maybe have about two, three years experience. What, you know, what would you say to the employee, you know, when, when, when you have a management that are typically uh, lackluster, that are typically uh, not efficient, not effective, that are typically uh, not ethical in their approaches as a business, you know, what would you say to that, uh, that employee, you know, would you would you say that it's best for them to go elsewhere, you know, and find out find another employer, or do you think that incorporating these six princi- six principles can actually reform that company and change the style of management? Um, so it, it it depends. So here's here's the advice I often give is if you have to look at and be really objective and honest about this how far away from from you like so let's say you're an employee you've been there a couple of years you're you're ambitious and you're motivated and you have a personal philosophy that um, is like yours and like mine that you know right. you believe in being ethical and you you are collaborate you're you know you think things should be done in a collaborative way and you believe Generally speaking, people want to do good work and you want to help them. You know, you have that's your philosophy. So you have to look and see how close to or how far away from your philosophy your company's philosophy is. So if you're a person like you or me who believes in openness and transparency and collaboration and all this kind of stuff and wants to operate in this way, and you're working in a company where people are dishonest and they don't believe in each other and it's every man for himself, and it's like that's so far away from what you are it's unlikely a that you're going to be happy there and it's really unlikely that you're going to be able to be the person that changes the whole organization and makes it like you so if it's really far away from you if you look objectively at your company and philosophically it's very far away from you i'd say leave i'd say look for another job because you're just putting yourself in for a world of frustration if you stay in a place like that now if it's if it's kind of close if it's pretty close maybe people believe it but they're not really delivering on it every day 
you know, and there's not too big of a distance, then you can often have a really positive influence. But you have to be realistic about it. You're, you one person are not going to, you know, hugely move the needle if they're in an entirely different place than you are. Does that make sense? That's a great way to put it. And uh, one TV show that uh, I watch from time to time is uh, Undercover Boss. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times you will see these CEOs, they say, oh, we're, we're for this type of company culture. When we, but when they actually uh, have these cameras and look at the actual uh, everyday uh, culture uh, in, in one of their stores, it's quite the opposite. Yeah. It's like they're disconnected with their company culture. And I, and I absolutely agree. I mean, that's, that's great advice that you, uh, that you deliver. And I would definitely recommend people for that to take note of that. Because obviously the last thing you want to do is spend years after years upon decades of working for a company and where you're just not happy and you're not feeling fulfilled. Uh, because uh, you know work plays a very integral part of our life. Oh. You know we have we have families. Uh, you know we, we're involved in other activities, but work plays an integral part of our life. And the last thing we want to do is carry that stress. Uh, to our families when we when we arrive. I, I totally agree, and you know the statistic that you that you talk about that only fifteen or twenty percent of people are really happy in their jobs. I, I just think that's tragic, and I think it's uh, I think it's unnecessary. I mean, I feel like if people, if if we if each employee took responsibility to say, okay, I I really want to work for a place where I feel they're good, <laughs> where I like what I'm doing, and the people around me seem pretty philosophically aligned with me. I mean, I don't think that's that high of a bar. And I feel like if people said that, it would be great. Much more people, many more people would be happy at work. People would be more likely to ask for slight but important changes in work that would make it better. And the other thing I think would happen, although this is pretty hopeful on my part, is that the companies that are bad, you know, that are really bad places to work and treat their people badly, they would be less and less successful at hiring people. <laughs> Which would be good. You know? <laughs> yeah. I just want to take a moment to tell you about DreamHost. DreamHost.com is the award-winning web hosting service rated by PC Magazine. With their current rates and positive reviews, I couldn't think of a better company to recommend. You can get $10 off a one-year hosting plan or $25 off a two-year hosting plan when you use the promo code CALLEN. K-A-L-L-E-N. DreamHost.com, PC's Magazine, best web hosting service. We're speaking with Erica Anderson. She's the founding partner of Protease. Uh, she has served as a consultant and advisor to CEOs and top executives of NBC Universal, of Gannett Corporation, of General Electric, and Turner Broadcasting. She's also a famous blogger on Forbes magazine, and she's the author of four books. Uh, we just we just got finished talking with her about uh, one of her books, Leading So People Will Follow, and kind of breaking that down, quantifying it. But let's take the opportunity to move on and talk about your new book, Be mm -hmm. Bad First. What really compelled you to write that book? Well, it's uh, it kind of arose out of the last book, so it's great that we talked about that. So when I was doing interviews, you know, when the Leading So People Will Follow book came out, this was in 2012, um, and I was doing interviews, uh, people would, almost every interviewer would say to me, well, you know, don't you think good leaders are really born and not made? And I would say, well, no, or I wouldn't have written this book, you know. And I really think that most of us who want to be leaders are, are pretty improvable. We can learn to be better leaders. And they'd say, well, how do you learn to be a better leader? And I would say, well, I have a lot of specific ideas about that in the book. There's a lot of activities to do to get better in each of these six. But just overall, if you want to become a better learner, 
here are a couple of things you can do. And as I talked about it, I thought, wow, this is really, the more I talked about it, the more I thought about it, I realized that something that I believe is true, which is that here we are in the 21st century, things are changing all the time, that the ability to learn new skills and capabilities quickly and continuously is probably the most useful and necessary skill that everybody can have now. Because nothing is standing still anymore. I mean, you know, if, if you became a pipe fitter in 1925, when you retired and got your gold watch in 1965, being a pipe fitter was probably pretty much the same job, you know. And now somebody gets out of college and they start a job. That job may not even exist in 40 years, right? I mean, everything is so quickly. So I wrote Be Bad First based on these four skills, which I'll, which I'll tell you what they are, that we come to call the new model, that are the four mental disciplines that people who are great learners have. And I really feel like that it will equip people, reading this book and learning these skills will equip people to to thrive into the future, to just keep learning and absorbing new skills, new ways of operating, new ways of doing business, because that's what we all have to do. So, so um, Erica, how would people get good at things fast to stay ready for the future? <laughs> okay, so the heart of this book is what we've come to call the ANEW model, and it stands for aspiration, neutral self-awareness, endless curiosity, and willingness to be bad first. And those are the four skills, and they're all developable. So let me talk a little bit about each one. So aspiration means just wanting things. So uh, an important truth is that human beings, we, we only do what we want to do, period. I mean, and sometimes we confuse ourselves by saying, oh, well, I really want to do that, but I just haven't gotten around to it yet. That just means you don't really want to do it, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> we do the stuff we want to do. So the good news is, and this is germane to learning stuff, is that you can actually make yourself want to do things. We think it's immovable, either you want to do something or you don't, but you can actually make yourself want to do things. And the short version of that is the way to make yourself want to learn something is to focus on the benefits, the personal benefits to you of learning it. Because when we don't want to do something, what we focus on is all the ways that it will be hard to do. Right? Oh, I don't have yeah. time and it will be a pain in the ass. I'll look dumb. Blah, blah, blah. You know, but if you focus on what are the personal benefits to me of doing this thing, then your aspiration is likely to ramp up. So in the book, we talk about how to do that. So that's aspiration. Neutral self awareness is just being really objective and accurate about yourself in the area where you're starting to learn. Are you good at it? Are you bad at it? Do you, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Because we are notoriously in accurate about ourselves and if you can get really true about how you see yourself that's the best possible place to start for learning great let me stop you right there i, I definitely recommend people because uh, I've, I've been saying this for the longest and it's definitely worth repeating that you know people who feel like because there's some people out there erica who feel like well i don't really have any strengths and and, and people would say well maybe i need to go back to school to study more i and what, what i would recommend is people to check out uh, MOOCs, which stands for massive open line courses mm -hmm. which is usually which is a part of something called open uh courseware which is a which is where a lot of these uh, universities, uh, they offer 
they offer their courses online for free. Now, you don't get credit for mm -hmm. them, but you're still able to learn uh, the full course format uh, as you would if you were studying uh, at that uh, actual uh, university. And I think that could be a great way. I mean, there's a there's a lot of great courses uh, that, uh, that these uh, universities offer from business courses, from management courses, from uh, marketing, uh, so many types of courses. And that's something I would recommend. I mean, obviously, if you feel like you don't have the strength, you know, focus on something that you're interested in and zoom in on it. And again, there are abundant amount of those type of courses that you can take advantage of and eventually become an expert. I, I agree. I think MOOCs are great and I love that there's more and more online learning available. I In the book, I am not talking primarily about academic learning because I think that um, when when you talk about learning, people think about school. They think about oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this book and get this information. But the more important kind of learning here in the 21st century is learning new skills and new capabilities, new ways of operating. Because we we have less resistance to intellectual learning. It's just easier because you don't really have to do anything different. All you have to do is absorb the information. The kind of learning that is hard and necessary for us is to learn to behave in different ways learn new skills, right? So right. you can take a management course, great, then you know the information. Are you actually behaving differently? Are you operating with people differently? So that's that's what the focus is of this book, is how do you learn new skills? So, um, and picking up on your point, people, like for instance, if, if you wanted to learn to be a better manager, neutral self, getting neutral self-awareness would be saying, how, where am I good and bad right now at being a manager? What am, I, what am I good at when I work with other people and what am I not good at? And most people, we're just not very accurate about that. We think, oh, we're, no, I'm just great. Or we think, I'm just terrible. What, we, we have these you know, inaccurate ideas. So in order to be a really good learner of new skills, you have to get very accurate about where you're starting from. And that's what neutral self-awareness means. That's good. Please continue. Well, so the third one is endless curiosity. And this is... Um, fortunately, this one is inborn. We generally lose it later, most of us, but little kids, if you've ever been around little kids, they are just relentlessly curious. They want to know everything. How does it work? If I, can I eat it? Will it break if I drop it? You know, why is that? And then what happens when we get to be teenagers is it gets socialized out of us. We, a little kid will say, ooh, that's cool. How does that work? And a teenager will say, well, you know, I already know everything. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to tell me anything. And unfortunately, that doesn't get better when we get to be adults. But great learners either retain or re-engage that childhood of curiosity. So when they're confronted with a new, uh, you know, a new area of knowledge, a new skill that they don't understand. Like I, I know some, some executives who are very curious and, you know, somebody will come to them in a meeting and start talking to them about, say, digital media. And rather than just like pretending they know what's going on, they'll go, ooh, wait a minute, I don't know much about this. Can you just talk to me step by step about how that works? That kind of curiosity is so rare in adults, but it's so incredibly necessary to learn, to learn new things, to learn new skills. So I talk in the book about how to re-engage your curiosity. And then the last one, which is the very hardest for adults, the W in a new stands for willingness to be bad first. And that's why I call the book Be Bad First. This is the hardest thing for us. When we get to be grown-ups, we like being good at things. And we really don't very much like going back to being a novice because it feels funky. You're embarrassed and you're clumsy and you have to ask stupid questions and other people are better than you and it's kind of scary. And so being able to get comfortable with that uncomfortable state of being a beginner is absolutely essential. And so that part of the book, I talk about how to 
manage your internal monologue, how you talk to yourself about things, so that you can be comfortable being in that beginner state when you're learning something new. I agree, and uh, often, often, uh, it's still like a humbling experience yeah. too. <laughs> Coming to a close, um, Erica, if people want to get in contact with you, or if they want to follow you, how would they do that? Uh, there's a couple of ways. They can um, go to the website of my company, which is proteus-international.com. Um, they can go to my Forbes blog, where there are hundreds of blogs that I've written over the last five or six years. And if you just go to Forbes.com backslash Erica Anderson, E-R-I-K-A-A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N, that's good. And uh, yeah, those are probably the two best ways. Great. Erica, thank you for being our guest. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. You're a great asker of questions. Thank you for listening. Just another great episode by Callan Diggs, best-selling author and career strategist as seen in Fast Company and Inc. Magazine. If you're not on an email list, you're missing out. Go to reachingthefinishline.com and subscribe to get all the exclusives.